Ezekiel 25. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to them, Hear the word of the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you said, Ah, over my sanctuary when it was desecrated and over the land of Israel when it was laid waste and over the people of Judah when they went out into exile. Therefore I am going to give you to the people of the east as a possession. They will set up their camps and pitch their tents among you. They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. I will turn Rabbah into a pasture for camels and Ammon into a resting place for sheep. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet, rejoicing with all the malice of your heart against the land of Israel, therefore I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the nations and exterminate you from the countries. I will destroy you and you will know that I am the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Because Moab and Seir said, Look, the house of Judah has become like all other nations. Therefore I will expose the flank of Moab, beginning at its frontier towns, Beth, Jeshemoth, Baal, Menon and Kirathim, the glory of the land. I will give Moab, along with the Ammonites, to the people of the east as a possession, so that the Ammonites will not be remembered among the nations, and I will inflict punishment on Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, because Edom took revenge on the house of Judah and became very guilty by doing so. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and kill its men and their animals. I will lay it waste. And from Teman to Denon, Dedan, they will fall by the sword. I will take vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel and they will deal with Edom in accordance with my anger and my wrath. They will know my vengeance, declares the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because the Philistines acted in vengeance and took revenge with malice in their hearts and with ancient hostility sought to destroy Judah, therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am about to stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will cut off the Kerithites and destroy those remaining among the coast. I will carry out my vengeance on them and punish them with my wrath. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I take vengeance on, on them. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, Ah, the gate to the nations is broken and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruin, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea she will become a place to spread fishnets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord, she will become plunder for the nations and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks, Carl. 
Thanks, Marty. And uh, thanks to Roseanne as well for coming along and sharing uh, about uh, what you're hoping to do in a couple of weeks. And thank you, more importantly, for going. It's great. Uh, it's such a blessing. And we thank God uh, for the gifts that he gives, has given to you and that he gives to his people. Before I get into the sermon, I have a piece of homework uh, for you all to do. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I listened to a talk yesterday by, uh, by Peter Adam uh, on my drive uh, out to, um, to La Trobe. Uh, and I've posted that talk on the church website, on the branch website. It's on Revelation, the first chapter of Revelation. Everybody should go and listen uh, to, that, to that sermon. Better yet, uh, don't listen to it on your own. Listen to it in your growth groups uh, because he talks about uh, so many useful things, I think, uh, which follow on in some ways from what we've been thinking about uh, in Ezekiel, particularly things like corporate sin uh, and corporate idols. Uh, in the second talk there, uh, he talks about uh, corporate idols as well. So uh, please uh, go home and, and listen to that uh, and talk about it with, uh, with your growth groups and friends and so on. But, uh, but this morning uh, we're looking at uh, these chapters in Ezekiel. We're not just looking at uh, Ezekiel 25. We're hopefully going to look uh, kind of a, at a sweeping overview of chapters 25 to 32. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think one of the hardest things to understand in the Old Testament is God's treatment of the nations. Uh, how did God uh, treat people in the, uh, who weren't part of the nation of Israel? Often it seems to be in judgement. Uh, and, and often it seems to us, I think, callous. God seems indifferent. Uh, and what God does to the nation seems to be kind of objectionable. It's, you know, it seems unjust, perhaps, to us. Well, these uh, chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 25 to 32, are all about uh, God dealing with the nations around Israel. You might remember if you were here last week that in Ezekiel 24, God finally brought the judgment uh, on his own people. So Nebuchadnezzar was knocking on the door of Jerusalem uh, and laying siege to Jerusalem. But now for the first time in the book really, God's focus, Ezekiel's focus, moves beyond the people to the nations around it. And these words, these seven or eight chapters, span about a two-year period beginning from the time when Nebuchadnezzar began to lay siege to Jerusalem and they span about 16 years, a 16-year period. And hopefully as we look at, uh, at these prophecies of God to the nations, we'll come to grips with what seems to be God's surprising and perhaps awkward uh, view of the nations. It might, uh, it might help to start doing a, a sort of a quick survey of the chapters uh, and uh, I want to put up a map. Simon, can you put, it, put up that map? So, Wow, so I hadn't tried this, but uh, can you see that vaguely? Okay. So right, there's, all the, there's all the different countries. So in chapter 20, 25, there's four different nations that are mentioned. There's Ammon, so Ammon, Moab, Edom and Philistia. So the three down that side and then Philistia uh, on, on the left there. And Jerusalem's the kind of the orangey bit in the middle. Uh, then chapter 7 is a lament for Tyre. So Tyre's kind of up, uh, up there on the coast. It was a great sea trading nation. Uh, chapter 28... Uh, is a prophecy against the king of Tyre. Uh, then the, ne- the next chapters are all pretty much after that about Egypt. Uh, so Egypt, Egypt's not on the map, but it's kind of over there. 
So uh, chapter 28, uh, sorry, chapter 29 is a prophecy against Egypt. Chapter 30 is a lament for Egypt. Chapter 31 is a metaphor about Pharaoh. Chapter 32 is a lament for Pharaoh and there's a few kind of bits and pieces uh, stuck in the middle. So thanks, thanks Simon. So there you are, there's, there's these chapters. It's, there's the four countries in that first chapter but after that it's pretty much about Tyre and then pretty much uh, about Egypt with a few other bits and pieces in the middle. Now it would be easy I think to think that uh, the nations were being judged just because they were the nations, uh, just because they weren't Israel. But they weren't being judged because they were the nations, they were being judged, says God, throughout all these chapters because of their sin. Uh, They were being judged just like the people of, of God were, they were being judged for their sin. The same problem plagued both of them. So Ammon is judged Uh, because they rejoiced over the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, They saw it as an opportunity for their advancement. So in chapter 25 verse 3, you said, Aha! Over my sanctuary when it was desecrated and over the land of Israel when it was laid waste and over the people of Judah when they went into exile. In verse 6, you clapped your hands and stamped your feet, rejoicing with all the malice uh, of your heart against the land of Israel. And, and Moab is judged for the same reason. They saw God's judgment on God's own people as a, as a kind of an opportunity for their own advancement. And it's such an easy trap to fall into, isn't it? Uh, so you uh, might be here this morning, you might not uh, be a Christian, but when you see uh, the church, the, the crimes in the church, the sins in the church being exposed uh, in the newspapers and on the news, when you see uh, people being rightly exposed for for sexual crimes against children and against other people, uh, you might think to yourself, well, that serves them right. Ha! I'm I'm glad the church is finally getting uh, their comeuppance. Uh, What a bunch of hypocrites. But God says, even though those people are justly punished for their crimes, even though what they've done is vile and repulsive, Rejoicing with sadistic joy over their judgement shows that you're just as bad as they are. Stunning, isn't it? God was rightly judging his own people. He was rightly bringing judgement against the people of Israel and he says to the nations around, when you say, ha, look at them, you're just as bad as they are. Maybe you're uh, you're a Christian and when you see uh, atheists like Richard Dawkins uh, being defeated in a debate, you know. John Lennox trampling all over uh, Dawkins. Maybe you go, ha! Suck it up, you know, princess. Well, God says that shows that you're just as bad as they are. Just as in need of as much grace as he is. So uh, those uh, Ammon and Moab are judged uh, for taking advantage of God's judgment on God's people. Edom is judged for taking revenge on God's people. Chapter 25 verse 12, Edom took revenge on the house of Judah and became very guilty by do- doing so. So too uh, did Philistia. The Philistines acted in vengeance and took revenge with malice in their hearts and with ancient hostility sought to destroy Judah. They decided to take justice into their own hands. It wasn't enough to leave it to God. They wanted to do it themselves as well. 
And how easy is it for us to do the same thing? How easy is it for us with malice in our hearts to take revenge on other people? Of course, uh, you and I, most of us, I suppose, are are probably too sophisticated to come to blows after church. Uh, I don't know know what happens in in the parking lot after church sometimes, but maybe... There's a few fisticuffs. Uh, most of us are too sophisticated for that though, aren't we? we? We never resort to physical violence but we still can judge people with malice in our hearts, can't we? Middle class uh, judgement, middle class warfare often looks like the cold shoulder. I'll show them. They're going to treat me like that. I'm not going to talk to them anymore. The best of all, it seems so tremendously civil, doesn't it? It seems so, makes it look like we're so wonderfully uh, great people. And yet the same cesspit of hatred and malice is in both our hearts. Tyre is condemned for the same reason as Ammon. Uh, Look at 26 verse 2, Tyre has said of Jerusalem, Aha, the gate to the nations is broken and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. But Tyre is also condemned for pride. So turn over to chapter 28. Chapter 28 is addressed to the king of Tyre and in verse 2, In the pride of your heart you say, I am a god. I sit on the throne of a god in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a god, though you think you are as wise as a god. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding you have gained great wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill you have in trading you have increased your wealth and because of your wealth your heart has become proud. Egypt too is accused of ridiculous pride. Uh, look at chapter 29. And verse 3. I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lying among your streams. You say, the Nile is mine, I made it for myself. What a ridiculous thing to think, isn't it really? I made the Nile for myself. But that's the preposterous pride of the king of Egypt and that's the preposterous pride of the king of Tyre and that's the preposterous pride that plagues our own hearts as well. How easily we make such ridiculous claims to having made things for ourselves and amassed great things for ourselves. We say to ourselves, I've created my own wealth. We say, I've made myself what I am. I'm a self-made man, a self-made woman. I've built my own success. You might have worked very hard for what you have and that's fantastic. We, We ought to you know, work as hard as we can with the gifts that God has given us. But who gave you the gifts to work with? Who gave you the opportunities to do that work? Who gave you an able mind and an an able body? Who protected you from misfortune, from workplace accidents? Who kept you from sin? There's a remarkable uh, account in Genesis 20, I don't know if you're familiar with it, where Abraham passes... Uh, his wife off uh, as his sister and Abimelech uh, kind of, you know, uh, is pretty interested in in Abraham's wife Uh, and then he finds out what's going on and and Abimelech says to God, I never touched her, I never touched her. 
And God says, I know you didn't touch her. Who do you think it was who kept you from touching her? It was me. God had protected him, kept him from sin. You see, we think we're self-made people, that we make our own fortunes. But God says, no, you don't make your own fortune. I am the God who gives you everything that you have. God gives us everything as a wonderful gift of his grace. So uh, Tyre and Egypt are condemned for their pride. Egypt is also condemned for, condemned for being a false friend. In uh, chapter 29 and verse 6, there's this quite a disturbing picture actually. I can see it in my mind's eye. It's a picture of Egypt as a, as a bad friend, as a, as a staff of reed. So 29 verse 6, you have been a staff of reed for the house of Israel. When they grasped you with their hands, you splintered and and tore open their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and their backs were wrenched. I, oh, I, I was reading through this sermon this morning and I just could not get that image out of my eye of, of, of you know, your hand being torn open on sharp reeds, you know, all that sharp grass that you sometimes get into the bush. That's the image here that, that Egypt was like a staff of reeds. It was, a, it was a poor staff. It was sharp. You'd lean on it. It would rip you open and worse, it wasn't very strong, so when you tried to lean on your, all your weight on it, it just fell to pieces. Israel, instead of trusting in God, had tried to trust in Egypt. And Egypt had said, don't worry, we'll protect you. But they couldn't. They tore Israel to pieces and they failed in the time of need. Sidon is condemned for being bad neighbours in 28-24. It says, no longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbours who are painful briars and sharp thorns. So the nations, in other words, would suffer not because they were the nations but because of their sin. They were bad neighbours, they were malicious neighbours, they were proud, they were conceited, they denied God, they were false friends. They triumphed at God's judgement on God's people. God's people. So there in, the, in these chapters we see that first thing that the nations would suffer on account of their own sin. Yet there is in these chapters something quite surprising as well. Uh, several times in these chapters God calls on Ezekiel not just to, to announce the judgement which was going to come but God also calls on Ezekiel to offer up laments for those nations. God uh, calls Ezekiel to wail and to mourn over them. So 27 verse 2, Son of man, take up a lament concerning Tyre. 28 verse 12, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre. 30 verse 2, Son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the Lord says, wail and say, alas for that day. 32 verse 2, Son of man, take up a lament concerning Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And indeed God uh, laments, uh, God's laments over the nations become even more puzzling when you begin to look at what they say. So turn to chapter 27 uh, and to verse 2. So this is a lament for Tyre. 27 uh, verse 2, uh, sorry verse 3. Say to Tyre, situated at the gateway to the sea, merchant of peoples on many coasts, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. 
You say, O Tyre, I am perfect in beauty. Your domain was on the high seas. Your builders brought your beauty to perfection. They made all your timbers of pine trees from Senna. They took a cedar from Lebanon to to make a mast for you. Of oaks from Bashan they made your oars. Of cypress wood from the coast of Cyprus they made your deck inlaid with ivory. Fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail and served as your banner. Your awnings were of blue and purple from the coast of Elisha. Men of Sidon and Arvad were your oarsmen. Your skilled men, O Tyre, were aboard as your seamen. Veteran craftsmen of Gebal were on, your, were on board as the shipwrights to cork your seams. All the ships of the sea and their sailors came alongside to trade for your wares. Men of Persia, Lydia and Put served as soldiers in your army. They hung their shields and helmets on your walls, bringing you your splendour. Men of Arved and Helech manned your walls on every side. Men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung their shields around your walls. They brought your beauty to perfection. Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth of goods. They exchanged silver, iron, tin and lead for your merchandise. Greece, Tubal and Meshech traded with you. They exchanged slaves and articles of bronze for your wares. Men of Beth Togama exchanged workhorses, war horses and mules for your merchandise. And on and on and on it goes. Tyre was a, was a place, it was a city of great industry. Uh, it, was a, it was an economic and cultural and commercial powerhouse. And yet, because of their sin, verse 27, God says, your wealth, merchandise and wares, your mariners, seamen and shipwrights, your merchants and all your soldiers and everyone else on board will sink into the heart of the sea on the day of your shipwreck. They were a powerhouse and yet they would be judged by God. Or listen to this lament from chapter 28, from verse 12. So this is a lament that God puts into the mouth of Ezekiel about the king of Tyre. Chapter 28, verse 12. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz and emerald, chrysolite, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendour. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. It's a pretty extravagant language, isn't it, really, to describe one of the nations. 
Uh, It seems a bit strange to us to call the king of a pagan nation the model of perfection and full of wisdom and blameless from the days he was created. But Ezekiel is here using language that compares the king of Tyre to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And the point is to highlight the great heights from which the king of Tyre has fallen as a human being. We were all created in the image of God. We were all invested with dignity and gifts by God to cultivate God's world and to serve God and to love God with all our creativity and with all our productivity. But sin has corrupted that. Your sin and my sin and Adam and Eve's sin have catapulted us down from the perfection in which God created us, the dignity in which God created us, to the just judgment of God. You see, the point is that the king of Tyre had actually achieved some really significant things. They'd really done wonderful things in Tyre. They were economically powerful and creative. You know, sails from Egypt and ships being sent out all over the known world. The king of Tyre was made in the image of God and because of that he had honour and dignity. Yet he was corrupted by sin and justice from God for his injustice would be his downfall. And God says that's really tragic. God says it is tragic that these people gifted by him installed with dignity, should be judged because of their sin. And indeed the tragedy is compounded by the great heights that Tyre reached. So take, uh, take uh, Germany before the Second World War as an example. Before the Second World War, Germany was, like Tyre, a cultural and economic powerhouse. They were one of the leading countries in Europe. And yet the whole country descended into the worst kinds of injustice and hatred and war. The, the country was humbled and brought, brought to its knees by the Allies and by God for its sins. Was that just? Yes, it was absolutely just that they were humbled and that they were judged for what they'd done. Was it horribly regrettable that it had come to that? Absolutely. Not that... It wasn't regrettable that they received justice. What was regrettable was that they were so committed to sin that they had to be judged in the end. What was so regrettable was that they were so committed to turning away from God that they descended into that abuse and violence and hatred. One of the great puzzles as you read through these laments of Ezekiel is that some of them don't seem to be all that lamentish. You know, so uh, Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, lament for the king of Egypt. And then you read through and it doesn't seem all that sad. You know, it seems a bit more like just a justification of God's judgement rather than kind of weeping and mourning. What's going on? What's taking place? I think what's going on is that these What makes these prophecies of judgment a lament is not so much the content of of what's going on but the tone. 
It's a bit like reading an email. You know, how many of you have got an email from someone or sent an email to someone and you've totally misread it? Not because of the words on the page, but because of the tone that you imagine it to have. So you read it and think they're being vicious and vindictive and actually they're trying to be, with all their heart, very encouraging. Or you think that they're being encouraging and they think that what you've done is the most wonderful thing in the world and actually they're trying to say, perhaps maybe next time you could, uh, you could do this or that and, uh, you know, and, and that would be better. How easy is it to misunderstand the tone of something that's written down? And I think that's kind of the case with these prophecies here in Ezekiel is that we we come to them with a tone in our head and the tone in our head is God is vindictive and callous. And actually the tone of God here in in these passages is not vindictive and callous but it's mournful and regretful. Why did it have to come to this? Why were you so committed to sin? We've seen already in the book of Ezekiel that God doesn't take uh, pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you remember those words from Ezekiel uh, chapter 18? I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. And yet God at at the same time as mourning over these nations is still committed to justice. We can't keep those things together in our head. We find that so hard to to do both at the same time, to mourn and to be just. It's as though in our minds if God is committed to justice then he couldn't possibly grieve over the nations or if God is grieving over the nations then he couldn't possibly still be committed to justice. No, No, it must be one or the other. But God says, no, that's not how it is. I am absolutely committed to justice and I'm still so grieved that the people that I formed and made are so committed to sin that they won't turn and live. It's a bit like a judge who has to pass sentence uh, on a man, say, who's committed murder. And as he goes through the trial, he discovers that this man, before he committed this murder, was a, was a wonderful man with a great family and great business great contributor to arts and culture and society, a great supporter of his employees and of workers' rights and whatever else it might be. And as he passes judgement on this man for this murder, he says to himself, no, what I'm doing here is absolutely just. He must be punished for that murder. And yet, isn't it so sad the heights from which he's fallen. Such a great man of society with such great gifts, so many things to offer. Isn't it so sad that this is what it's come to? And that's really the the, the tone of these chapters here in Ezekiel. Why does it have to be like this? Why won't you turn and live? Well, Australia is a great country, isn't it? Australia is a land of opportunity, it's a land of wealth. We have a great education system. You might not think it's that great, but you know, it's pretty good. We have a great health system. You might not think it's that great and could be better. But you know, 
we're still doing pretty well. We love to uh, talk about ourselves punching above our weight, don't we? You know, whether it's in, uh, in diplomacy, Kevin Rudd uh, talking about you know, being on the UN Security Council and punching above Australia's diplomatic weight, or whether it's in sport at the Olympics. You know, we get more medals than Canada, you know, who has twice our population, whatever it is. And yet our greatness has hardened our hearts just like the people of Tyre. Our greatness has hardened our hearts against people less fortunate than ourselves. Our greatness has hardened our hearts against refugees who seek a better life and seek safety and a better future. Our greatness has driven us to a political system and a culture which cares more about the present than about the future, which cares more about our generation than it does about the next. Our greatness has driven us to great pride and to thinking that that our greatness is our construction, that we've done it ourselves. And one day our country will reap the just rewards of our pride and our arrogance. But don't think for a moment that that doesn't grieve God. In one sense, God will be pleased because it will be perfectly just. But in another sense, God will be so grieved that we were so committed to sin that it had to come to that. I was listening to uh, these talks, as I said yesterday, from, uh, from Peter Adam, and he made the point, which I thought was so helpful, that when we pray the prayer, God, please provide me with food. Please, please provide me with breakfast for today or for tomorrow. When God answers that prayer, he answers that prayer through people. The farmer who milks the cow. The farmer who grows the grain. The driver who drives the truck. The road builder who builds the road that the truck can drive on. The people who run the supermarkets and whatever else it is. See, God has invested our world with so many amazingly gifted people with great gifts to serve us, to serve our world so that we can, we can cultivate this world that God has given us. It is so sad, so desperately sad that all those wonderfully gifted people are so committed to sin that they won't turn and live. Do you remember Jesus in Matthew 23 looking out over Jerusalem? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he said, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. God is not the great intolerant ogre in the sky. God is a God of great patience and great mercy but God is also a God of great justice. So in these chapters we have both. We have both God's justice and God's compassion and God's love. But in these chapters we also have uh, one last glimpse and that is of a, a glimpse of God's great desire for his glory. 
a great desire that God's name would be known, but a great desire that God's name would be known both in judgment and justice and also in salvation. So throughout these chapters, uh, if you were to go home and read them, which I encourage you to do, throughout these chapters there's one phrase that keeps coming up over and over again. You might have picked it up in the short reading that we had before. And that phrase is, then they will know that I am the Lord. It's a phrase actually that comes up all the time through the whole book of Ezekiel. Then they will know that I am the Lord. But in these chapters, that phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord, seems to be almost entirely bound up with judgement. So when God judges the nations, then they'll know that God is the Lord. That is, by God's righteous judgement against the nations, they'll know that he's God. They'll know that he's the God of the Bible, the one true living God. It's uh, not all that easy to understand exactly what God is talking about when he says that. Uh, And it's hard to know actually how that helps the nations. How does it help them to know that God is God when he's judging them? How does that help? But uh, throughout this series I've been helped by a a book uh, by a guy called Chris Wright Uh, It's a a commentary in a series called The Bible Speaks Today. It's kind of a small book. Um, uh, And as we've gone through this series, I've kind of followed some of of the outline for the series and the chapters that we've chosen. But but he makes in that book a very helpful comment on these chapters, uh, which I found was so helpful in understanding what's going on. This is what he writes. He says... Thus, while Ezekiel doesn't go so far as to say that the nations will repent, turn to Yahweh and be saved, other prophets did say that before him and others would say it after him. Still, he does say that they will witness both the justice of Yahweh and his punishment of Israel and themselves and the grace and mercy of Yahweh in his restoration of Israel. From their witness of these great things, they will know that Yahweh is God. So what he's saying is they'll see God's justice both in their own judgment and in the judgment of Israel but they'll witness God's deliverance in his restoration of Israel. What's the point? The point is this. There was no hope for the nations as the nations. There was no salvation apart from God's work among the people of Israel, among the community of God's people gathered around the promise of the Messiah. The problem is that we hear that and we think that that must mean that there was no hope for the nations. But that's not true. What it means is that the hope for the nations didn't lie in themselves, it didn't lie in their own repentance, it didn't lie in their own repentance alone, it didn't rely on their own return to God alone, but it lay in their cleaving to the community of God gathered around the promise of the Messiah. That's what Rahab realised as the walls of Jericho fell. She, she, she cleaved to the people of God gathered around the promise of the Messiah. That's what Ruth uh, realised when she returned uh, from Moab to, to the people of Israel with, with, with her mother-in-law. She said, your God will be my God and your people my people. Well, listen to these words from Isaiah 56. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, 
The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not the eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. If you're wondering, eunuchs were excluded under the law from the temple. So to say that they'd have a a name in the temple itself, a place in the temple, is an extraordinary statement. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Here was the message. If you bind yourself to God and to his community, anchored around the promise of God's Messiah, anchored around the hope that it was God who sanctifies, God who makes holy, anchored around God who rescues people from their sins, if you bind yourself to God and to those promises and to that community, God says you will not be cast away. And it's the same message today. There is no salvation among the nations. There's no salvation away from Christ. There's no salvation away from Christ's people. And as you look around the world, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Wars come, suffering comes. Among the nations in this world, apart from Christ, we know God through his just judgment. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. But as people look into the community of people gathered around Not God's promised Messiah, but God's Messiah actually come in Jesus Christ. As people peer in to the community of people gathered around Jesus Christ, people will begin to glimpse a picture of God, not just in judgment, but a God of great deliverance. As people peer in to the community of people gathered around Jesus Christ, people catch a glimpse of God's resurrection power. They catch a glimpse of God's mercy. They catch a glimpse of God's grace and God's forgiveness. It's the same message for the world today as it was in Ezekiel's day. There is no salvation from God apart from the community of people gathered around Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. Here is God's personal appeal to every single one of us. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you love the nations that you have created and the people that you have formed and made. Lord, thank you that you love them because the truth is that we find so many of them so hard to love. 
Lord, we find it difficult to love the people in the church, let alone the people in the world as well. Lord, we confess that our attitude towards them is like the attitudes of the nations toward the people of Israel. Lord, we gloat over their suffering. We're proud like the nations and think that everything that we are is what we've made ourselves. And yet, Lord, you are a God of great love and great compassion. And as you look out over your world and your people, you grieve over the sin of all the world and you grieve over the justice that will come on those who fail to turn to you. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to grieve as well over the great heights from which your world and your people have fallen, from great dignity and great gifts to great sin and to great rebellion. Lord, help us to love them. Help us to be patient as you are patient. Help us to love them by speaking the words of grace into their lives. Lord, we pray for each one of us too. Lord, we ask that none of us would be so hardened by sin's deceitfulness that we would persist in sin rather than turn to you and live. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to turn to him, to love him, to gather with your people around him, to serve him, to serve his people and to serve his world. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.